Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back. I'm going to talk first because you get to talk the most during this one. Maybe. We had a little debate on whose name always gets to be listed first on everything, and I always just say it's alphabetically, both by first and last names. Yeah, don't care. And middle names, actually, just so you know. Mm, Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so this is episode 103. Yeah, and this is actually uh, one that's going to be multiple parts over the next few months. I thought we were mentioning how many if we counted COVID. Oh, well, if we counted COVID, that was 62 more. 165. The history of COVID as seen by experts all over Minnesota and the country. Country. That uh, were part of our COVID echo. So again, those are still listed on there. So if people want to hear how insane it was at the beginning of COVID and what the experts didn't know, it was it's pretty interesting. I mean, if you just pull out like certain ones and then kind of progress through that same theme of uh, infectious disease doc throughout. I don't know. Anyway, we digress, but I tend to do that one. So today we're talking about the medications for for alcohol use disorder that are actually FDA approved, which is only three. Well, that's three meds, but one of them comes injectable. So naltrexone. Yeah, this is. So this was, I, yeah, yeah, three. That's just like bizarre to me that there's there's only three when it's one of the most You're probably wondering common. where I got all this information from. I, you know, I'm sorry. I was supposed to say that on my own. Kurt, <laughs> I can't believe you have this many pages. This is very nice and wow, half legible. I'm pretty sure you need to start using more reputable sources than Wikipedia. Yeah, I get everything from <laughs> Wikipedia. You know, that me or Dr. Oz. Or Dr. Phil. <laughs> or Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah, so today's stuff actually... Okay, uh, but for real, it's actual we, journal articles, which I cannot believe... I, yeah. yeah, anyway. We, we have... Uh, I've never used Wikipedia. Although no. when you when you ask Siri to give you something, sometimes it gives you Wikipedia. It but only any, does that, like, if you're a huge Wikipedia person. It's never in my top five anymore. Weird. Just because I never click on it. Remember, it's that whole, like, algorithm thingy. Yeah. So today, it actually, most of the stuff is actually from a, a really interesting review article that was a Medications for Alcohol Use Disorders, an overview. And this was actually in the Pharmacological Therapeutics uh, back in 2018. Which is really still current. Yeah. Mohammed Akbar. I love that last name, Akbar. And we have a, another, we'll have another couple podcasts coming up, but maybe just one, but maybe more on the off-label medications for alcohol use disorder. And those articles are, I mean, from yesterday, it seems. Yeah, and probably the next one I'll do will be the anticonvulsants, you know, the topiramates, the gabapentins, all those. That, But, anyway. you know, there was. I also got, uh, there was a very... Good article that was in ResearchGate on topiramate and altrexone, acamprosate. And I, I did take some of the information actually sure, from sure. that. Because so. that is FDA approved. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to just, because I, I know this one in detail, the most effective treatment for alcohol use disorder is abstinence. And I think it's interesting to, I'm not interesting, I think it's really good to point out that 
you know, when we're talking about opioid use disorder and the standard treatment is definitely not abstinence, it's it's some type of medication for opioid use disorder. And that has been proven, you know, the neurobiology and all of that. But alcohol use disorder is abstinence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and obviously abstinence is, can be difficult. So a lot of the meds are more adjuncts in, in addition to psychosocial things and counseling and therapy and other, other things that go along with that. None of these are a cure-all, like, 100% fix, but they're things that have been studied relatively well. So really in the past couple of decades, there's been, you know, two groups of drugs that are utilized. You know, we have meds that we use for alcohol withdrawal, and we're not really talking about that today, but then we have the meds that are really to kind of uh, attenuate kind of the cravings and uh, and support the patient uh, than being abstinent. So... But there's there's really you know again unlike opioids there's no drug that like completely antagonizes you know the adverse effects of these meds so mm-hmm. it's not it's not perfect. Well, and this you know the to focus I'm going to jump back to the the abstinence base because I think it's important to to point out that you know this is really where the support groups Alcoholics Anonymous this is where kind of support groups in general kind of kind of came from. Um, yeah, and I think- way back in 1935. Did you know that Ohio, of all places, which is kind of an interesting, um, with Ohio kind of being one of the sites of the opioid epidemic, but I just, I'm sorry, I have to go into this history a little bit because it's legit. Bill W., a stockbroker from New York. Yeah. Remember that? that and wrote, a Dr. Bob. That wrote the book. The Akron Surgeon. And, you know, both just kind of did this whole AA thing. And I think that's just such a cool thing because it has been a big deal for how many years in the, in the AA Bible and the steps and all that did yeah, is you, effective. You do remember this is about meds today. I know, but I, it's, I think it's really important to point out though, that again, you started the most effective treatment is abstinence. So I'm just pointing out what else helps. Yeah. And actually I saw a patient just yesterday and you know, one of the things I always point out is that that's really, to me, a really helpful thing and, and finding the right group is really important the right support mm-hmm. and, the, and and all that but okay so the, re- the, yeah. the, so the, the re- medication so the review actually talks about the fda approved drugs and then there's a section on medications and trials and then you know and then the off-label meds and so again we're going to talk about the fda approved ones you'll have to wait for the rest dr bell so so those three meds of course antabuse or disulfiram the acamprosate, and then naltrexone, which, of course, comes oral and injectable. Right. Although oral is kind of the the realm with alcohol abuse, which I think it's really important to, I think, and you'll probably get to this, but why I prefer the oral naltrexone for people with alcohol use disorder versus the injectable is because of the timing thing, and we'll get to that. Yeah, and I don't know if we will. This is This is a little different kind of chat. Well, no, but so, it is important because it is important for people to know when to take their naltrexone if oh. they take it for alcohol use disorder. Yeah, true. So disulfiram, uh, we'll start with because, and of course, antabuse. And this is not something I use a ton. I don't know about you. I, I have patients request it. That's that's and, when I use it. Mm-hmm. And I have used it for patients who request it. It's kind of a negative drug, meaning that it's it's a negative negative reinforcement, reinforcement. <laughs> and I I don't know it's like oh if every time I ate a, a piece of candy if I get hit with a stick I you know I wouldn't want to eat candy that much but I don't know it seems like a bad way to do it 
just that's just me. Um, but this was actually discovered in the in the twenties, nineteen twenty. Uh, Adams and Ludwig. Just right before you were born. Yeah, just minutes before. <laughs> but it, interestingly, even though it was around for you know, 20, 30 years, it wasn't actually FDA approved until 51, 1951. That's amazing to me because of the timing of that and where in history that fell. So anyway, yeah, and it really was given the indication by the FDA for the treatment of chronic alcohol use. Yeah, back then it, it said in their alcoholism. But... Uh, the mechanism of action is really something that we talk about all the time, actually, mm-hmm. in the talks with the students about kind of inhibiting that alcohol dehydrogenase, which, of course, piles up the acetaldehyde and, well, you don't feel good. Right, which is actually kind of the opposite of people who are building tolerance. When people get tolerance, they actually somehow get more alcohol dehydrogenase and it speeds it up. And so this doing the opposite, again, creates more of the adverse icky effects. Yeah, and even a small amount uh, can give you the mild effects. Uh, so you don't have to drink much alcohol to, to get that flushing, the throbbing headache. You know, people get a little nauseated and vom- you know, vomit or get sweaty. So even a small amount. And I think, you know, the problem always with abuse, much like it would be with oral meds for anything, is really you can stop them. And right. even Suboxone or buprenorphine, you can stop and wait a day or two and then use. But... Um, and this one, actually, it's not even like a day or two. You can just skip your day's dosing and, and go out and, you know, just kind of an aside. And I just kind of glanced through. It's not in here. But this is the same reaction you get if, you know, take oral metronidazole yeah. for different infections and drink alcohol and drink alcohol. So, yeah, but you can have severe effects. And that's what's always kind of scared me about it is like, uh, boy, if you were to really drink a bunch and had just taken your antabuse, it's, you know, especially the, you know, possibility of, you know, acute congestive failure, heart attack, cardiovascular collapse. I mean, goodness. You know. Convulsions and death. Yeah, that sounds not so good. And, and this is this is because of the rapid buildup of acetaldehyde. But I think that, you know, it's kind of like some of the medications, you know, even, even buprenorphine. It's like, it's the best thing we have now. And if you look back for 40 years, it was the best thing they had. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it was used so much. Um, but yeah, there, there are some really rare side effects, though, as well. So a metabolite of it, and I guess I didn't know this, diethyl, Ooh, try diethylcar, to say that. I don't know, you didn't write the yeah. whole word. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just anyway. I just it's just the metabolite. Metabolite um, of, of increases the, the metabolism of dopamine to norepi, resulting in psychosis. So that makes sense. Um, as to why that happens, you know, you get that surge of dopamine, you can get psychosis, which is kind of what can happen with people with methamphetamine use disorder. They get all the dopamine rushes and well, this methamphetamine is, the, induced psychosis, but that's not because of the dopamine It's from the norepi. Yeah. The norepi. And it's a very rare thing. And I had read about this actually before about after patients have taken this for two or three weeks, some develop these weird neuropathies, these polyneuropathies. And sometimes they involve the cranial nerves, which is a little bit crazy. Did you see anywhere, though, that described, like, is there a certain subset this happens in, or is it more just patients who were to consume a lot of alcohol quickly after taking it versus... No, this is a... The neuropathy thing is more related to the medication itself, and just that's why, it, as it builds up over two weeks, this is when they tend to develop it. Yeah, I've not yeah, seen I, it. Yeah, I guess I... No, I haven't seen yeah. it. Most people... I've had most people that I put on disulfiram actually because one they requested and two they take it more as needed. 
like a PRN, like they know they're going to be in a situation, like they go to a holiday and the whole family still is drinking alcohol versus, you know, people. So, I mean, ideally is if your family knows that you have an alcohol use disorder, they just don't have alcohol around when you're at those events to kind of minimize that, that, you know, triggers. But it, people who don't have families that do that and they go to an event, they'll take it before they go to the event to help them not drink. Yeah. I haven't had enough patience on it to really, I mean, again, it's been very rare over the last four or five years. Mm. Now, did you see though, with those more rare side effects of the actual, you know, how the medication, the, the how it works, so that acetaldehyde builds up if, if it's more, if you consumed like five shots quickly versus sipped a beer, you know, did they have more of those rare side effects if they consumed a bunch of alcohol faster? It did not talk about that. But even small amounts can trigger the mild symptoms from Crazy. what I come across. So so really the big question always with uh, disulfiram has been, is it effective or not, right? Does it really, does it work? And actually Skinner et al. in 2014 did this big meta-analysis. Should I explain what that is for you or do you know no, what that I, is? No, I'm you're, you're totally there. Okay. And uh, and the efficacy of, of it really is controversial, right? So they looked at these 22 studies. Which is, you know, the definition uh, of meta-analysis. I was just, I just wanted you to know how many studies. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, basically they concluded a couple interesting things that, number one, disulfiram was superior in comparison to controls when it was an open-label trial. Random. So when people knew they were on it versus and not the, know they were on it, it was more effective. And when the doctors knew what they were taking. For some reason, it seemed like it worked it worked better than control. but Because they also know that it's a negative reinforcement. So if they know they're on something that's going to make them sick. Yeah. So then what, what, what happened was when they did it, when they looked at the blinded studies, the, blind, the blinded random controls trials, there wasn't really that same efficacy. So it's like, um, it seems to work if you know what, you, what you're taking was kind of the conclusion. Hmm. And, and everybody knew what you were taking. Interesting. So, yeah. Because you'd... I mean, that makes sense, but then the whole, it did not work or show efficacy, and I wonder if it didn't show efficacy compared to controls, because everyone was afraid that they were going to get this med and make them sick, so nobody, sorry, yeah. I don't know. So I think really a summary, you know, it's, uh, I think disulfiram is probably a very specific med, in my mind, it, the way I would use it. I, I don't come up with it first. I think patients, some patients have experience with it and have had positive results, and I'm not opposed to it in that situation, mm -hmm. but... Again, kind of a negative reinforcement and a little different than the other things. I find it interesting that we're jumping to, oh, because it was it was approved sooner. I was like, why are we jumping to this med versus the campersate? Which I just realized when you were talking just a second ago, this is actually a really good review for boards on these meds. Yeah. These showed up on my boards a ton. Yeah. I had a ton of alcohol meds. So anyway. So we're going to switch to naltrexone. Uh, you know, obviously a couple different trade names uh, or one trade name for the injectable. oral and one for the injectable. Uh, but this was actually approved in 1994 hmm. and it was actually approved at the same time for treatment of alcohol use disorder and opioid dependence. And then the injectable brand name Vivitrol, which is still how it's referred because we're still under patent, um, is the extended release that was approved in 2006. So, 2006, that one popped up. And uh, and it's an interesting drug because, you know, naltrexone actually has an active metabolite, uh, which I don't think we think about often, but and it's this 6-beta naltrexol. 
And this is actually an antagonist at the mu receptor, the, the kappa, and the delta. So Those are mu, kappa, delta, opioid receptors. Opioid receptors, right. So the whole thing is that it's binding to those receptors so you don't get... It attenuates, minimizes the pleasant sensations yeah. associated. It doesn't stop anything. It attenuates it. You know, so it's, you know, it's, uh, it's around for a couple different things. And, you know, when you look at some of the, the different effects of this, I mean, it's been shown to prevent that heavy drinking and, and decreased volume, especially in the number of alcohol drinking days, right? And, and some people would say in the heavy drinking days mm-hmm. that this makes a difference. And that was shown in 2010 by Rosner et al. Yeah. And really, despite kind of its effectiveness in managing alcohol and really opioid consumption, really the, the benefit of this has really been described as modest. I think, and I think most of us understand that. I mean, some people are real big responders, other people not. Uh, but I think often, you know, we never want to present this as why this is going to shut it down for you. Right. This is going to help. And that's, that's what we're looking for. So I'm going to finish this up on your next page here, but I have a, a thought on this medication when it's, when you're choosing a patient to start this or to have, I mean, you have these conversations with all patients, and when you're choosing this medication, I have a, I have a kind of curious as how you have this conversation, but the indications, management of abstinence, and relapse prevention. So yeah. there you go. There's your ideal patient. Yeah, I mean, that's really where it's indicated. And I think, you know, it's funny because this, uh, and I looked at these both of these different reviews, and basically they were suggesting that the, that the ideal patient probably is that person with moderate to severe Severe mm-hmm. alcohol use disorder, somebody who probably drinks more than five drinks a day, and they're having alcohol-related problems. And, you know, I would probably characterize that as legal issues, um, you know, other medical issues arising from it. So I think that that's probably the, the ideal patient. But I think the smoking thing is interesting, That is too. super interesting. Um, so people who smoke, which, you know, are actually they have a better outcome and better response to naltrexone. Yeah. So, yeah, there have been some some studies that have shown that people who smoke do, do better in the long run. And I would have to say that probably the majority of the patients that I've seen, especially recently, uh, also smoke. So do you have a certain kind of kind of patient with alcohol use disorder? Are you... Or do you just kind of give everybody the chance and the option? Or, or where do you see, like, anecdotally, where patients like this med do better than other patients. Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, there was also some suggestion that people that, um, you, you know, that people that a little later onset alcohol issues may do better as well. And I don't know, I think that, you know, well, what do you do with somebody who's also got a history of major depression with naltrexone? Do you use naltrexone because of, the, you know, that whole concern about taking away the pleasure and, you know, is it going to cause some other issues? Um, you know, I think it's always nice if they have two issues at once. Right. Right. And if you've got that patient that's got an opioid use disorder and an alcohol use disorder, which I've seen Sometimes, a number yeah. of. Uh, so I think what I've noticed, and you, you've you taken care of, and I'll full disclosure this, you've taken care of more patients with alcohol use disorder than I have. I do much more of the meth, it seems. But the, I've had a lot more recently. And when I've brought this up, there are certain people who look at me like I'm just crazy and they're like, I don't think it would stop me. And I'm like, well, you know, we don't know, blah, blah, blah. But I found that finding out how they drink, like why they drink, you know, if they're the person that's like, 
I'll have one and then I have two and then I just don't care anymore and I just keep drinking because it's been pleasurable, they'll do well. But when I have patients who are just like, I'm bored and I'm just drinking because why not? They're yeah. fully aware of what they're doing and it never like seems to be out of control. They're choosing the fourth, fifth, sixth. They don't tend to do yeah. as well. And I think the patients I've had who are typically evening drinkers, they're not drinking all day. And you give this at, at supper time when they would typically be drinking, that it seems to work better right. than the people working, you know, that are drinking all day long, much more heavy. Um, then I, I sometimes lean another way or I break the dosing. I'm going to say, yeah, I usually say take it around three or four when you get home from work. Yeah. So anyway, third so. one, I'm digressing or rambling, but I think it's important to think about the dosing because I've seen actually better luck when I've switched people who had maybe started on it somewhere else. But yeah. Okay. The third one that was approved, a camprosate. Yeah. Campril. Uh, and I'm going to admit right away, I don't have a ton of experience with a camprosate. Um, it's funny. I just, I, I don't know why I don't think about it, but I don't, but this was approved in uh, 2006. And, uh, it's interesting because it's it's really kind of thought to stabilize kind of that balance of neurotransmitters that are that are kind of zinging around the brain that would otherwise you know be disrupted, especially with alcohol withdrawal and, and other things. But it's it's just um, it's an interesting drug because you know it's probably more just like uh, I think naltrexone is kind of indicated in that management of abstinence and relapse, right? So that's kind of where you're aiming. Um, so. Kind of how I thought about this, like for the boards especially, it was, you know, because of that balancing in neurotransmitters, it's kind of preventing that first drink. Like it kind of just takes away that initial, in a way, craving for that first drink versus like naltrexone, I always thought was like minimizing how many. Yep. That's, you know, and so that's kind of one of those things. It's like... Yeah. You know, it's not perfect, of and course. I, but. And, I, and there's actually one study that's been done. Well, actually, two different people have kind of shown that Mason in 2001 and Nutt in <laughs> NUTT uh, in 2014 that it, it really seems to work best um, with psychosocial support and, and really is kind of helpful to facilitate kind of that reduced consumption as well as full abstinence. And I, and I think that, you know, think about it with any of these, it's that psychosocial report, support, report, support. That probably makes a, a difference as well. But, um, you know, there is evidence that shows that it helps in maintaining absence. There's clear evidence of that. There's particularly in patients with uh, kind of that late onset alcohol use disorder. And uh, and there's some relief of craving. Right. Just kind of why I always think it kind of prevents that first drink. Yeah. The bummer with this medication is that you have to take it three times a day. Yeah. And that's been one of the issues that I you know, have had with it. It's nice, especially like when I have one patient in particular, I'm thinking of that, you know, it was always four o'clock, you know, highballs um, before, before supper, which led into about eight or 10 drinks a, a night. And it was just so easy for me to do once a day naltrexone. Mm -hmm. Whereas if a campersate, you're doing that three times a day, is she, she or he going to take it, right? Well, right. And it's, you know, you do start it at a, a lower dose and you work up, but it ends up being three tablets three times a day. So total, they, I'm just going to point that out. It's 666 milligrams three times a day. Just yeah. an easy, weird so, one to, to talk about. But I've, yeah, I've only used it once and I hadn't started it. It had been started on somebody um, in an inpatient setting and they did well. But after about six months, we, we were able to stop it. They had had enough of those psychosocial supports that they just didn't feel 
you know, they didn't have that because they had built some coping mechanisms. Yeah. So just a little thought on there was, there was actually a nice little ending to this about the combination therapies, like, um, and interactions between some of these drugs and, you know, do they interact with things that the patients may be on for mental health or, or other things? And, you know, I think in particular, a campersate, you know, their pharmacokinetics aren't really affected by alcohol, which I think is helpful uh, because people do lapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with naltrexone as well, you see that same thing. I mean, often I, you know, I don't expect that they're completely not drinking. It's always nice and you, you hope that they are, they are abstinent when they start it. But often with naltrexone, you can start it. And well, actually it's been shown to decrease daily drinking uh, significantly in, in those cases. But but it's uh, important to to kind of comment on the you know acamprosate with the severe renal impairment yeah and and minimizing or lowering the dose but you can use it in liver disease so that's huge yeah not contraindicated if you have child's A or B liver disease yeah and I think that too if you look at uh, some of these uh, some of these things like naltrexone it also doesn't really isn't affected by some of the mental health meds the the, the barbiturates, benzos, anxiolytics, um, hypnotics, antidepressants, you know, especially, you know, things like amitriptyline and different things you might be giving at bedtime. Uh, so those things are, are okay. I think one thing we should point out, though, because if you're going to start it, it talks about getting liver function tests um, on patients with naltrexone. And, you know, it typically will cause an elevation, but not significant. And it usually resolves on its own over a couple of months. But if you get five times the upper limit of normal, you know, that's maybe where we should, you know, minimize dosing or pick a different one. And that happens more at the higher dosing of oral, like the 100 milligram dosing. Yeah. Now, the can you give these things together? You know, like acamprosate and naltrexone. People do. People do. And, and actually, there's been studies on that of co-administration. And um, it's shown that really the biggest issue is really naltrexone will increase the plasma levels of acamprosate. So that's something that you have to think about, pull the dose back potentially. Um, but there aren't any studies with, uh, you know, combining them with disulfiram. And a lot of the mental health drugs, especially things like lithium or cl- clozapine or benzos. So, so just understand there aren't those studies um, and there's been a, you know, a, a, you know, when we look at methadone for substitution therapies, probably not. Don't want to do those together. Well, <laughs> right. But so, yeah, these are interesting medications and it does definitely come up. Um, I think what I see the most with naltrexone is, especially depending on the dose, you tend to start a little higher than I do. Again, you've done this more with people with alcohol use disorder is more that nausea initially. Yeah. Um, but most will continue. They're okay with it. Um, but yeah. So I'm trying to think. There's topiramate's a little bit different. But we're not doing topiramate today. Oh, dang it. I was for, I love yeah, topiramate. Like, dang it. So it. anyway, I, I guess that's a, that's a teaser for the future podcast on the... Um, I just thought you might like the fact that topiramate may cause more kidney stones. <laughs> so don't take it you're like a kidney stone if they guru. were like pearls i would be totally <laughs> rich right now but yeah anyway so i just love this review this is good um even yes. for us who do this it's just good to always remember that there are these medications and yeah how how they kind of fit in and so probably down the road here the next one will be on the the uh, anti uh the things like topiramate gabapentin and other things that are used 
in alcohol use disorder. And we'll talk about some of the studies that have been done. So Perfect. that's all I got. All right. Well, thank you. We'll let Casey take over and we will chat at you next week.
your end. It was pleasant to join you this hour. Though I likely won't meet you again, I surely won't meet you again. Surely won't meet you again.